0: This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author chris lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvette Press. This is episode 194. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm Chris Lester, your guide to the fantastical world of Metamore City. You can find more of my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. Each week I bring you a piece of my fiction, available in audio for the first time anywhere. I'll also tell you what I've been working on as I continue my journey as a writing professional. So let's get into it, shall we? Here is this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 52 of my Metamore City novel, The Lost and the Least. If you're new to the show, go back to Episode 143 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. Kate, Murakir, John, and Morgan are trying to put a stop to an occult ritual by the Brotherhood of the Sepulchre. They have set up a base of operations in a skimmer repair shop where Murakir and Kate have drawn an elaborate incantation on the concrete floor, the shop sits directly over a ley line, which is feeding mana to the Brotherhood's ritual. The plan is to reroute the flow of the ley line to another mana node, which will cut off the Brotherhood's power supply and ruin their spell. Murray's incantation is earth magic, which is immensely powerful but slow. To make matters worse, Kate will have to channel the ley line through her own body, a massive feat that she can only attempt because of her strange supernatural heritage. Kate and Murray are performing the spell only a few hundred meters away from the Brotherhood's underground base, and if they're to have any chance of success, they must remain undetected until the spell is cast. That's where John and Morgan come in. John did some rooftop snooping and identified the entrance to the Brotherhood's base, a small, unassuming warehouse with way too many armed guards around it. Having that many enemy goons so close increases the risk that one of them will notice what's going on in the repair shop. It also poses a threat to whatever reinforcements Callie, Lizzie, and Michael are able to send to their aid. If the police try to storm the cult's base, a lot of people are going to get hurt. John and Morgan crafted a plan to draw the guards’ attention away from Kate and Murray and to thin their ranks so they won’t pose such a danger to the final assault. We haven’t yet seen what they have in mind, but it involved Kate casting an illusion on Morgan, making her look like a dark-skinned human. Meanwhile, John used his shape-shifting ability, taking on the form of a beautiful, athletic blonde woman. If the plan actually works, Kate tells Morgan, their next coffee date is on her. The Lost and the Least A Novel of Metamore City Written and Read by Chris Lester Chapter 52 Albert Cooley was beginning to feel like he'd gotten the short end of the stick with this whole Brotherhood of the Sepulchre business. It had all started out well enough. He'd only been a sophomore at Chisholm when a buddy had recommended him for admission to the Key and Arch Imperial Honor Society. It was an elite group, probably the most exclusive society on campus. Everybody who knew anything had assured him that membership in the key and arch would open the door to the highest levels of metamorph society. For Albert, the fifth son of a minor house, the connections he would make through the key and arch would make the difference between a prosperous, successful life and one of mediocrity and obscurity. Or, so they had told him, By the end of his junior year, Albert had learned that the real power and influence all belonged to a select group in the society's inner circle, the so-called Brotherhood. He'd spent the next year after that kissing ass and going through all sorts of horrible hazing rituals, all to prove himself worthy of membership. Finally, two months before graduation, the Brotherhood had agreed to accept him into their ranks— He'd gotten the secret tattoo that marked him as a member, put on his ceremonial robes for the first time, and taken the oath before Mistress Adrastia, one of the leaders in the local chapter. And what had all this time and effort gotten him? What illustrious work had the mistress entrusted to him as the newest member of this elite brotherhood? Standing guard outside a ratty-ass street-side building, for hours... While Adrastia and the others did some kind of ritual downstairs. On a school night, no less. Damn it, I have finals to study for. Hey, Al. Sullivan, one of Al's fellow newbie recruits, called to him from his position on the rooftop. Albert and Sullivan were supposed to get cool code names like the rest of their brothers, but Adrastia said they hadn't earned them yet, so for now they were still just Sully and Al. "'What's up, Sully?' Al asked. Sully pointed off to the east. "'There's a skimmer out there. It's been going around the block for the last few minutes. Kind of slow. You think maybe they're the criminals Adrastia told us to look out for?' Albert felt a mixture of fear and excitement. "'Finally, something's happening.' "'Yeah, maybe. Hang on, let me talk to the boss.' Albert went around to the building's main entrance." where a senior brother named Ursinus was in charge of the security detail. He was a tall, tough-looking bear morph, and he sneered down at Albert as he approached. What's the matter, kid? You need to use the potty again. Albert bit back his resentment and bowed his head. Sir, Sully spotted a skimmer circling the block. We thought maybe we should go check it out. Ursinus grunted. Let's have a look. They went up to the roof, where Sully pointed out the vehicle. Albert couldn't make out much. The overhead lights weren't very good in this part of the street, but he could see the skimmer's headlights as it crept slowly forward, pausing in front of each building for several seconds before moving on. The vehicle seemed to be wandering erratically back and forth on the road, like the driver was hitting the wrong controls for the lift turbines. Probably just a drunk tourist, Ursinus said. Go tell him to get out of here. Yes, sir, Albert said, relieved to finally have something to do. He swung his rifle over his shoulder. Let's go, Sully. Hey, Ursinus said sharply. You got a permit on you for that thing, genius? Leave the rifles here. The last thing we need is some stupid tourist telling people they got threatened by guards with military hardware. If they give you any trouble, you've got your stun guns. Ursinus held out his big furry paw expectantly. Albert sighed and handed over his rifle. What good is it to have cool weapons if he can't show them to anybody? Let's go, Sully, Albert said. It came out sounding more sullen than he had intended, but Ursinus didn't give him a hard time about it. Not this time, anyway. The two recruits headed east, keeping to the shadows like Ursinus had taught them. Even without the rooftop perspective, it wasn't hard to find the skimmer. The driver had started revving the turbines way too fast, then abruptly reversing them, a bit like stomping on the accelerator and brake pedals of an old-fashioned ground car. The whine and shriek of the abused turbines echoed off the surrounding buildings and the skyway overhead— a racket that was impossible to miss. "'What the hell are they doing?' Sully muttered as they approached the street where they had last seen the skimmer. Albert shook his head, mystified. He pulled out his stunner and peeked around the last building in the direction of the noise. The vehicle was a nice one, a mid-sized sedan from one of the upscale manufacturers. It looked like the sort of skimmer that nobles bought for their children— safe, reliable, and high-quality, but not too fast or showy. Albert doubted, though, that any of his friend's parents would approve of the way it was being used right now. A stunningly gorgeous blonde woman was hanging halfway out of the passenger-side window, peering up at the nearby buildings as if they might hold the secrets of the universe. Her makeup was a little smeared around her eyes and mouth, And a few strands of her hair had come loose from her ponytail. Her shirt and bra were missing. Only a leather jacket covered her torso, and that was unzipped, leaving little to the imagination. Her companion, a brown skinned woman in a thin white shirt, was trying to drive while simultaneously keeping her friend from falling out of the window. The skimmer swerved and jerked back and forth as she moved from one building to the next and every time the vehicle lurched, the blonde flopped around in the window like a rag doll. "'Wait, wait, stop, stop, stop,' the blonde woman said, her voice slurring drunkenly. "'This has got to be it, I just know it.' "'That's what you said the last five times,' her friend said. They were both yelling over the sound of the tortured drive turbines, and Albert could make out their words clearly as he approached. Joni, honey, I don't think it's down here. It is, the blonde, Joni, insisted, slapping the side of the skimmer once. We just gotta. Hey! Her drooping head turned over on its side as her eyes fixed on Albert and Sully. Look, Mora, there's some cute guys right there. Let's ask them if they know where the party is. The darker woman, presumably Mora, turned around and looked out the back window at Albert. Then she turned back around, extended the parking skids, and executed a rough but serviceable landing. The drive turbines spun down, and Albert imagined that they sounded relieved to be getting a break. "'Hey, boys,' Joni said, grinning and waving at them. "'Want to help out a couple of ladies?' Albert grinned back and started walking toward her. I'll wait. Sully grabbed his arm, stepped up to whisper in his ear. This is weird. What are a couple of drunk girls doing down here in the middle of the night by themselves? They're lost, man, Al whispered back. They probably just went looking for a rave or something. Sully looked up nervously at the surrounding buildings. It could be a trap. Al scoffed. (laughs) From who? Sully shrugged. Cops? The Reds? Mistress says the cops are taken care of, Al said, and the Reds are too busy worried about the Whites to care about us. Face it, man, this guard duty is a joke. The only reason we're not downstairs helping with the ritual is because they don't take us seriously yet. Hello? Hello? Joanie called, waving both arms now in an exaggerated fashion. Looking at you, hot stuff. You want to help a girl out or what? Al raised his eyebrows at Scully and grinned. Come on, man. Let's at least go see what they want. We all know what you want, Sully muttered. But when Al started walking toward the skimmer again, Sully followed without further protest. Both women beamed up at them as Al approached the window. "'Hey, boys,' Joni said, her blue eyes sparkling like aquamarine. "'I heard the Church of Hedonism's having a big party down here tonight. Can you help me and Mora find it?' "'She's had me driving in circles for half an hour,' Mora confided. "'Hey,' Al said, giving them both a friendly smile." I'd love to help, but I think you're in the wrong place. I've been working down here all night, and I haven't seen anybody else come through. If there was a party, I think I would have heard something. Especially with the way the hedonists like to party, he thought. Mora smacked Joni's butt, which was rather close to her face, since Joni was still hanging out the window. I told you, she said. Joni didn't seem bothered by the spanking. Indeed, she made a little moaning sound and wiggled her ass suggestively. I love it when she does that, Joni purred. God damn it, I could have gotten fucked back at the dorms, Morris said petulantly. Instead, you dragged me out halfway across the city because you wanted an orgy. Now neither one of us are going to get laid. Hmm. Joni was looking at Albert and Sully speculatively. You know, we do have a couple of cute guys right here. Mora leaned around her friend and looked closely at Albert. Immediately, he was struck by the power of her eyes. They were as dark as midnight, and they seemed to grab and hold him in place. Albert gasped. If he'd been able to move a muscle, he might have fallen over. You are pretty cute, Mora said. Her voice is rich and sensual as velvet. What's your name? Albert, Albert managed. Mora smiled, a predator smile that gleamed with two white teeth. Albert, you want to play with me and my friend here, don't you? Albert nodded dumbly. Suddenly, he wanted nothing else in the whole world. Hey, Al! Albert was dimly aware that Sully had grabbed his shoulder and was shaking him. Come on, man, we can't do that. We gotta get them out of here and get back to our post. But Joni had exited the skimmer now, and she nestled herself up against Sully's body on the other side. Her perfume was like nothing Albert had ever smelled before, something earthy and spicy that spoke of raw sexual power. He felt Sully's body go rigid, "'as she ran her hand over his chest. "'Come on, hot stuff,' Joni purred. "'Don't you deserve a little break? "'I can do things to you that you've never dreamed of.' "'She did something then that Albert couldn't see, "'and Sully let out a shuddering moan. "'I... I guess a little break won't hurt,' Sully said, "'his voice and breath ragged. "'Excellent.' Morris slipped out of the skimmer after Joni and wrapped her arms around Albert's waist. She pressed her forehead against his, and her eyes seemed to swallow the world. Let's have some fun, shall we? Twenty minutes later, Morgan rose shakily from a shadowed alcove in the nearby alley, wiping the blood from the corner of her mouth. The guard, Albert, was slumped against the side of the building, catatonic, awash in the psychic afterglow of the sharing. Fragments of the boy's memories swirled around in Morgan's head, colored by the emotions of the sharing, a disjointed mixture of wonder and fear, ecstasy and terror. Morgan had used her domination gaze on Albert, compelling his adoration and obedience— He had been all too willing to give her his blood after that, but the sense of being helpless in the hands of a creature far more powerful than he was had created a disquieting emotional resonance that ran through the psychic bond of the sharing. In that moment when their souls touched, when Morgan drew on his life essence and saw into his mind, Morgan also caught a glimpse of how he saw her dominant, overwhelming a wise and powerful goddess worthy of his complete submission. The vision was so thrilling, so intoxicating, that it terrified her. Ever since she escaped the Syndicate, she had refused to combine her domination gaze with feeding. Her sharing partners had been equals, chosen as much for their strength of will and personality as their willingness to offer their blood she had dominated Albert this time because it was necessary. She had taken his blood in order to incapacitate him without hurting him. With a piece of his soul inside her now, under her command, she could compel him to sleep peacefully for hours and he would do so. Given the seriousness and danger of their mission, it had been both the most rational and the most compassionate course of action. Or, at least, that was what she had told herself when she came up with the plan. A satisfied sigh dragged her awareness back to the present. John came sauntering back up the alley, stark naked and still wearing the form of the sexy young blonde. His hair was a tousled mess, his body was splattered with dirt and assorted bodily fluids, and he carried his few clothes wadded up under one arm— and somehow he still looked incredible. His skin glowed faintly in the dim light of the alley, and his incubus pheromones surrounded him like an invisible cloud of sexual energy. "'Morgan, hun, you come up with the best plans,' John purred as he started putting his pants back on. "'That boy was delicious. Not very skilled, but, oh gods, did he have energy to spare!' I should fuck sexually frustrated college students more often. Morgan forced a smile and turned to face him. Is he safely out of action, then? He'll sleep for a day or two after the ride I gave him, John agreed. You want to leave them here? Tie them up? What's the plan? Morgan closed her eyes and tried to focus past the noise of Albert's thoughts. All right. Let's take their wallets, phones, radios, anything valuable. The stunners, as well. We'll make it look like a mugging. She opened her eyes and glanced at John, checking for agreement. The blonde nodded thoughtfully. They'll send somebody else to find out why these guys didn't come back. We can find a spot to hide, wait for them, take them by surprise. They'll be on their guard next time, Morgan cautioned. They won't fall for the same trick again. John grinned. Maybe not, but now we've got their stunners. Morgan conceded this with a wave of her hand. She looked back down at Albert, a host of half-formed thoughts clamoring for her attention. John noticed. He put a hand on Morgan's shoulder. Hey, you all right? Morgan shook her head. They're just boys, John. Barely more than children. Soldiers usually are, John said. Young, impressionable, aching to belong, desperate to prove themselves, full of testosterone, looking for an outlet. There's a reason armies recruit from this age group. Fair point. Morgan looked at Albert's face, remembered his expression of terrified adoration when she dominated him. She shivered, remembered pleasure mixing with self-loathing. Maybe is right about me. John, as usual, was more perceptive than was good for her. There's something else, isn't there? Morgan knew better than to lie to him. There is, she admitted, but this is neither the time nor the place to talk about it. John accepted this with a gentle squeeze of her shoulder. Fine by me. Now let's find that hiding spot. If I were them, I'd be sending someone else along any minute. Morgan nodded agreement and followed John back into the shadows. It was where they both belonged now, but if that meant they could help Kate and keep her safe, Morgan was willing to live with that. And that's the end of Chapter 52. Come back next time, when Callie and Schubert's escape plan hits an unexpected detour. Stephen King said, Now comes the big question. What are you going to write about? And the equally big answer. Anything you damn well want. So let's see what I've been working on in my own writing. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 5,431 words this week, over the course of 6.75 hours, for an average writing speed of 805 words per hour. As of Friday night, I've gone 280 days without breaking my chain. This week I continued working on The Dark Lord Steve. Now that I have a clear sense of where the story was going, I went back and added some new scenes to the beginning and middle parts, setting up the relationships and conflicts that would be important for the story's conclusion. The manuscript is now up to nearly 17,000 words, and I'm thinking it will probably top out around 20,000. And now, the feedback. Gary David Henderson posted this on the Fans of Metamore City Facebook group. Chris, I'm listening to your most recent behind-the-scenes podcast, and I thought I'd offer this video from Big Cat Rescue on YouTube about who can and cannot purr. The TLDW is that snow leopards have never been heard to roar, and they do have the anatomical feature that is presumed to give cats the ability to purr, a solid hyoid bone. Which may mean they can purr. The other takeaway is that the largest cats who are known to purr are cougars and cheetahs. So Lizzie is right in that gray area, which fits perfectly. Sorry, not sorry. It had to be pun. Thanks for that info, Gary. It's cool to know that there's at least some scientific validity to the idea of Lizzie purring. The rule of funny means I'd have kept it in there regardless, but if I can be funny and biologically correct, that's even better. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorcityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900. Then enter extension 255-082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash authorchrislester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Mastodon handle is at authorchrislester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review in Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction, fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 and 2019 by Chris Lester and the Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.